Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah, sexual promiscuity, and like the days of Lot, sexual perversion. My friend, that is our day. And now in the last three or four months, it is walking right into the front door of the evangelical church. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Revelation. Having reached the halfway point in our series, Dr. Brogy, in a message entitled, What Time Is It?, has given a recap of what we've learned so far, and he's looking at the culture around us in the 21st century to demonstrate the possibility that we are in the last of what the Bible calls the last days. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy from Romans 13, 13, he addresses the sin of drunkenness and sexual immorality, which are signs of the end times. The god Bacchus was the god of wine. And just like we have an annual celebration of an event like Thanksgiving or Christmas, they had an annual celebration with the god Bacchus. And accompanied in that celebration were mass orgies across the city. And so when Paul writes to this first century church in Rome, many of its members would know that they were saved from these wicked behaviors. And many today can relate. They can relate to that time in Las Vegas, to that time in Daytona Beach, to that time in the college dorm where they lived in wickedness. The second sin with carousing goes with it, and he mentions drunkenness, not in carousing and drunkenness. Now, the two go together. Do you remember what the prophet Habakkuk said right out on the margin next to those two sins? Habakkuk 2.15. Again, he bleeds them together. He said, woe to you who make your neighbors drink who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. So this verse speaks about making your neighbor drunk. Why? So you can look on their nakedness. And God knows that when people start drinking, they begin to lower their standards. One of the most comprehensive studies ever done on the use of alcohol on the college campus was done about five years ago by Harvard, And those researchers found that 80% now of college students drink. And in the study, they found that 54% reported regular hangovers. 44% of the students reported blackouts. 39% of the students said on occasion they did not know how they got home. 34% reported throwing up. 22% found out later that they had sexual intimacy. Not 22% had sex because they drank, but they found out after they drank that they were immoral. And throughout the Bible, God links alcohol with sexual immorality. Hold your finger here and turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 23 for a moment. By the way, as you're turning there, I hope you saw the study that was just released by CBS just a few days ago. I think it came on Thursday or Friday of this past week. And the title of the study, again, a very comprehensive study, it's entitled, There is no safe level of alcohol. 
That's what they're saying. I could have told you that without doing the study. There is no safe level of alcohol. That myth, a glass of wine a day will keep, you know, the heart in good shape is a lie, according to this study. But I know it's a lie according to God's word. Because God teaches us two things. One, don't get drunk. Two, don't use strong drink. And strong drink is not, again, the distilled liquors that come a thousand years after the Bible is written, but it's high alcohol content wine. When I was in a Jewish home for a Sabbath dinner, I didn't partake, but I respected them that they used what was called sweet wine. It was 2% wine, 2%, not the 8, 10 you typically buy in the grocery store. Why? Because those Orthodox Jews did not want to be guilty of using strong drink. And that's how they have understood it for over 3,000 years, that high alcohol content wine. We're not talking about the alcohol content in whiskey and rum, but just wine. High alcohol content wine is forbidden by God with the exception of giving to a dying, despairing man. Now, listen to what he says. He's speaking to his son here in Proverbs 23, and I'm sure he'd say the same thing to his daughter to keep her on the straight and narrow. Chapter 23, verse 19, listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Again, in verse 26, he pleads with him, Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Here is a father warning his son, and here is a pastor this morning warning his people. And I hope you have ears to hear because I can promise you that this is not a warning that the alcohol industry will give to you like this father warned his son on that day. Now, he just told us in verses 20 and 23 that the sin of drunkenness can lead to poverty. In our own family, my mother's brother had the largest construction company in the city of Boston, and he drank it to nothing, and he died a pauper, a drunk, in a rented room about 40 miles away. That's what it does sometimes. And uh, people will literally come to poverty through it. But it also leads to sexual immorality. And so sandwiched here between his exhortation in verses 20 to 26 to stay away from alcohol and his warning against alcohol in 29 to 35, notice what he says beginning in verse 26. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. What a wonderful daddy who can say, live like me. Do like I do. Look, some of you dads, you got beer in the refrigerator, and you have that beer, and I'm telling you, you are being a terrible, terrible model to that son, to that daughter. You say you're making me mad, Pastor. I'm just telling you the truth. And people don't always want to hear it, but listen, you think you can drink in moderation, and it's just fine. No, you're drinking strong drinking. God says, don't do it. You know why people become alcoholics? Because wine is addictive. Beer is addictive. And that one can won't do what it used to do. And then it becomes two or three. And before you know it, your son thinks, well, dad can handle a beer. Why can't I? For a harlot is a deep pity, he goes on to say. And an adulterous woman is a narrow well, as he warns his son. Surely she lurks as a robber. 
and increases the faithless among men. And then he immediately picks up his refrain against alcohol again. Here's a father thinking and writing under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, and he brings these two sins together. He's saying, son, if you drink alcohol, it will cause you to go into the sin of sexual immorality. God knows that it plays with the mind. And an otherwise virtuous woman will let her morals down. An otherwise man who says, I'm, I'm going to be faithful to my wedding vows until death do us part, and he gets a little booze in him. And look out, before you know it, he's violated the marriage bed. And I can't tell you how many marriages as a pastor I've tried to put back together because of adultery. And in almost in every case, it started with alcohol. Evil people know if they want to seduce someone from the opposite sex, give them something to drink. So the first pair of sins is carousing and drunkenness. Let's keep reading here in Romans 13, 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Now, these two sins are closely related like the first pair. The word translated here, sexual promiscuity, immorality in some English Bibles, sexual impurity in others is the Greek word koite. We get our word coitus from it. It refers to the bed or to the bedroom. Uh, the King James says not in chambering, a little more literal, but that's the thought of it. Now, sometimes it can be used in a positive way to speak of the marriage bed. But very often it's used negatively where the marriage bed is defiled by sexual immorality, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Now, the second word is also closely related, and it comes from a Greek word that can literally be translated shameless. Sensuality or wantonness or shameless is what happens to a person once they begin to go down that road of drinking, once they begin to go down that road of sexual immorality. The things that used to bother them no longer bother them. And we have become a society of shameless people. People laugh at things that God calls evil. And friend, when you begin laughing at things that God calls evil, before long you'll be participating in that evil shameless. Like the people in Jeremiah's day where Jeremiah said they can no longer blush. No more red faces in America. Nothing shocks us anymore. So first a person joins the party and he gets drunk and then he commits some sort of immoral act and ultimately he doesn't care and he seeks other people to participate with him. He becomes an evangelist for sin. He is shameless. Let me just speak to the fathers who are to be the protectors and the heads of their home for a moment. And to the grandparents who should be a model for when your children, your grandchildren come to your home. What are you letting into your home? What kind of music do they hear you listen to? Is it that sensual beat in some song that's talking about immorality? Oh, I don't really pay attention to the words. I just like the theme, you know, the, the, the music. What kind of television are you pumping into the home? God said, put these things off, lay them aside. The garments of carousing and drunkenness and sexual promiscuity and sensuality. What kind of internet sets are you, sites are you clicking on? 
When I was a boy, it was, you know, R-rated movies. There was one street in Worcester, Mass. And it was like the dirtiest street. And it was kind of hidden. And you had to go there to find those X-rated movies. And, and, and the Playboy magazines and other things were all behind the counter and hidden. And now it's all up in the open. We celebrate it. We esteem it because we're living in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah, sexual promiscuity, and like the days of Lot, sexual perversion. My friend, that is our day. And now, in the last three or four months, it is walking right into the front door of the evangelical church where we have all these leaders who are saying, look, if someone has same-sex attraction, it's okay, you should celebrate it. That's evil. That's wrong. That's the way a fallen man thinks. Look at the third category here. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, in sensuality. Notice the last two. Not in strife, in jealousy. Look at your text. Look at your Bible. Not in strife and jealousy. The word strife is sometimes translated quarreling or discord. And it's a Greek word that describes a contentious, argumentative person. Someone who wants to be first. They, ha- they want to have their own way. The Bible in a little short book written by the Apostle John called Third John spoke of one such fellow called Diotrephes who always wanted to be first. Those are the people who often cause uh, this kind of strife in the church. And then the second word is jealousy and the two go hand in hand. Sometimes it's, uh, it goes with strife and it's the Greek word zelos. We get our word zeal from it. Sometimes, again, it's used positively. He speaks to, in 2 Corinthians because they had a big turnaround uh, of the Corinthians who had a zeal for Paul's authority and for his teaching because they finally recognized that he was a man of God and the other folks were phony apostles. But very often it's used negatively of someone who looks with jealous eyes upon another person. So Christians, I think it's interesting he puts these two last because sometimes we're quick to condemn drunkenness and orgies and sensuality and sexual immorality, but he then adds these last two. Look, any of us is one breath away from any of these sins. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, and these sins will dull your armor. They'll destroy your testimony. Finally, it's time to wake up. It's time to get up. Finally, it's time to dress up. Let's talk about dressing up. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, for the sin nature that is in regards to its loss. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the command. Now remember verse 13 represents who we were and verse 14 represents who we are now. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Romans would have fully appreciated this first century metaphor of putting something on. Again, it, it speaks of dress that, is, uh, that should accompany the kind of person that you are. 
And when we come to Christ, we are given a new righteousness. And God wants that righteousness that we are given in our position to begin to match itself in our practice. So Paul says, he, the father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The sinless son of God on the cross became sin for you. He bore your sin, my sin in his own body in the cross. Why? So that we might become, because we weren't before, what we need, the righteousness of God. You want to go to heaven? You need to be as righteous as God. And the only way for you to have that righteousness is to be gifted that righteousness by grace. And when you receive Jesus, you become the righteousness of God. That's your position. And so Paul can say to the Galatians that they had clothed themselves with the righteousness of Christ. But then Isaiah the prophet speaks likewise. He says, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with robes of righteousness. So this is a theme that runs through both Testaments. But God also wants our practice to come in line with that. So in Ephesians 5, for instance, in verse 8, he says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We're robed with Christ, and so now we are to wear Christ. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, when I cut the grass yesterday, I didn't do it in a suit. I wore clothes that were appropriate for the task. Now that I am born again and I have a robe of righteousness, God wants me in my practice daily, moment by moment, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, his full title. He is master. He is sovereign. He is Yeshua. He is human. He is Jesus who became man that he might shed blood, which is the penalty of sin, death. But he is also Christ. He's Messiah. He is Savior. He's the only one who can deliver you. So he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The word flesh here is not the skin that covers your skeleton, but the fallen sinful nature within. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its desires, in regards to its loss. Now, the word loss in Bible can be used positively or it can be used negatively. For instance, the Spirit of God in James, he lusts after us. That is, he earnestly desires, the NASB renders it, same word though, he earnestly desires control over our life. We have to yield ourselves to that control, but he earnestly desires to fill you and to empower you. That's a positive use of the word. But the word is also used negatively in a number of contexts. Someone who lusts after material things, someone who lusts after a person to whom they're not married. That's the negative connotation. And so scripture warns us, walk by the spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. And then he gives that list that again, any Christian can commit. So you need to ask, am I putting on Christ or am I making a provision for the flesh? Again, what am I watching? What am I reading? What am I listening to? What am I clicking onto? What am I logging into? And if you're clicking onto and logging into the sleaze and the filth of our day, you're not putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you drill on what the world is saying, you're going to be carried away into the world's way of thinking. The world is saying that sexual relationships before marriage are just fine. You know what they do? To, well, I, I won't even say it. I'm not even going to say it. It just makes me sick what they're doing on the college campuses for these young people when they come in, what they're giving them. 
Sexual relations, fine before marriage. Marital, marital affairs, it's part of life. Just don't let your spouse know. Children, oh, they're wiser than parents. Fathers, they're portrayed as just basically stupid. Criminals, it's all a result of poverty or maybe sometimes racism. Women, oh, they're really smart when they leave the home and they pursue a career and they become a real significant person. We're doing just the opposite of all the things that God admonishes us to do. And they say that to preach the Bible today is old-fashioned and outdated, and it will drive people away. Yes, it will, but it's not outdated. And someday every person is going to realize how true this book is. So you need to ask yourself, am I putting on the Lord Jesus? Ask yourself, have I done that this week? When you put on the Lord Jesus, you are acknowledging that without him, you can do nothing. You are living in dependence upon him. You are affirming that I need his strength. Don't tell me you're putting on the Lord Jesus if you haven't read your Bible all week. Don't tell me you're putting on the Lord Jesus if you're not talking to him and conversing with him throughout the day and going to him in prayer because that is a proud, independent life that thinks I don't really need his help. And yeah, you'll be conformed to the world. So how are we going to apply this passage and really the revelation? Because that's why I've stopped here right in the middle of the revelation. We're almost dead center. You say you've been preaching for a year and a half on revelation. That's okay. We'll get there. We'll finish it, God willing. But how are we going to apply revelation? Remember, blessed is the one who reads, who hears, who truly hears, so that he eats. Number one, remember that we're in a war. Remember, we are in a war. We must never go for a moment without our armor. I mean, would you drive without a seatbelt? Would you jump out of an airplane without a parachute? I hope not. Would you rappel down a mountain without a harness? Would you play a a basketball game in your suit? We're in a war, and we need to put on the armor of light because the kingdom of darkness is growing. Secondly, we remember to walk by faith and not by sight. Remember to walk by faith and not by sight. You have to choose which system you're going to embrace. You see, Satan has his little package plan for you, and he's trying to appeal to your fallen nature. And you have to choose, is God's way really better or is man's way? And we have pastors today who are afraid to tell the truth. They are just afraid to tell the truth. They are afraid to offend people. And I would not want to be a called man of God because as a believer, as a pastor, as a teacher, the scripture says, I will incur a stricter judgment. And I don't want to give a partial message and just trim the message so that it's comfortable for people so we can fill in more seats in the auditorium. That's not what I want to do. And listen, you have to choose whether or not God's way is the best way or not. And Satan, his whole goal is to lie to you and to try to convince you that you're being ripped off and cheated and you're really missing out. And even a believer can be captured by that and come to the end of his life and stand before the Lord Jesus and realize how they wasted their life. Third, just remember, it's the theme of the revelation. He's coming back. 
And if Christ comes back, what is he going to find you wearing? Are you in a robe of righteousness? Have you been saved? You say, I hope so. I think so. Look, if you don't know so, you are in shaky ground. And if you got questions, come tonight to meet the pastor. But listen, you can be saved today. It's not a righteousness that is earned or achieved because our righteousness is like a filthy rag. Whoever keeps the whole law and but violates in one point of it is guilty of it all. Sin soils us, it separates us, it condemns us, and the soul that sins must die, but there's a substitute who died for you, and if you will come to him, he will dress you in his righteousness. But listen, when he comes back, are you going to be practicing that righteousness? Are you going to be living out the uniform that you have on? It's time to wake up. It's time to get up. And it's time to dress up. And when he comes back, if you're not in a robe of righteousness, you'll spend an eternity in hell. And when he comes back, and if you've received that robe of righteousness by grace through faith, but it's all dirty, you're going to shrink back in shame. And you're going to kick yourself and say, why did I listen to that stupid devil? Why did I give in to the foolish packagings of the world that are under control of the prince of the power of the air? Why didn't I, by faith, listen to what God says? Listen, what I'm talking about today is not popular because at the end of time, most people's hearts will grow cold and lawlessness, 1 John says sin is lawlessness, sin will increase and you'll be a minority. And I'm telling you, the funnel is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And you have to decide how you're going to play the game. Now, Holy Father, we thank you today for your word, a lamp to our feet, the light to our path. I thank you that this is not simply what you have said, it's what you are saying. And you told us that the one who reads this book of the Revelation, one who hears it, truly hears it, and one who heeds it will indeed be blessed. So help us to pay attention. Father, I pray today for someone who's within the sound of my voice, maybe on one of our campuses, maybe live streaming, and they're really not sure that heaven is their home because in the back of their mind, they're not sure they're good enough. Father, I pray by your spirit, you convince them and show them that they're not good enough and never can be in themselves, that that's why you sent a savior that we cannot save ourselves. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that with your own precious blood at a tremendous cost, you redeemed us and purchased us through the substitutionary work that you performed there at Golgotha. Thank you that because you were raised from the dead, you've been declared Lord to all, and it is plain in our sight that whoever will call upon your name will be saved. Help some dear soul today to say in simple faith, knowing that you cannot lie, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, for those of us who have crossed that line, whose lives have seen the fruit of righteousness wanting to learn what is pleasing in your sight. May we pursue even harder and faster and more earnestly in this process of sanctification. 
Help us to watch over our minds and hearts in this day of evil. Help us not to waste our lives that when we come to the end of it, that we will not be ashamed, but that we will hear the admonition of our Savior, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. To listen again to today's study, What Time Is It?, Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV36. Tomorrow we dive back into the Revelation and look at God's army with the Lamb. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.